We're going to look this morning at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can open there, or you can open, just turn to the next page in the bulletin. Follow along there. Uh, last week in Matthew's Gospel, we heard about Jesus having the authority to forgive sins. And that leads uh, really quite naturally into our passage this week, because if Jesus is interested in forgiving sins, where should we expect to find him? Uh, probably spending time with sinners, right, so that he can forgive them. Uh, and that's just what he does when he calls uh, Matthew to follow him, and then he goes to this feast at Matthew's house, and he hangs out with sinners. Jesus plunges right in and really cements the idea that he, the righteous one, has come to be with the unrighteous, to seek them out and actually associate with them and actually just spend time in fellowship with sinners. So some people are morally opposed to the very idea of the forgiveness of sins. Uh, some would say that it's wrong to forgive sins. It's wrong to talk about the forgiveness of sins as you know, one of the fundamental aspects of your religion, that the Christian idea of forgiveness is actually bad for the world, that it would uh, destroy concepts like accountability and undermine true morality and justice and, and such things. <clears throat> and uh, they would condemn the mercy of Jesus himself as you know, he's enabling sinners to just go on sinning because he's not just confronting them, he's actually spending time with them, right? So the one true God uh, will be extremely upsetting to such people who are opposed morally to the idea of forgiveness. God's nature, God's character, God's will, God's presence, God's work, all of it, everything about God, who he is and what he does, as we see in Jesus, is frustrating to people who have no tolerance for mercy. But if you come to know your need for mercy, then you'll love the mercy of Jesus, and you'll love the good news that Jesus came to call sinners to be with him. And Jesus calls us uh, to, to a mercy like this, right, to seek out and associate with other sinners, to show them compassion and spend time in fellowship with them, just as he does, to introduce them to the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Jesus calls us to live by mercy, which is a joyful calling to those who love mercy. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray first, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, you have spoken to us conclusively through your Son, who is the clearest and most glorious revelation of you. We pray that you'd help us to know you through him as we read about him here in the gospel. We pray that you'd teach our spirits to love you and love your ways as we consider your word together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. <clears throat> and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, and this is Matthew's house, we know from Mark and Luke. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> 
So Matthew wrote his gospel uh, particularly to the Jews, right, to the Hebrew people, uh, to bear witness to them that Jesus is truly their king. He is the Hebrew Messiah. Uh, Matthew himself would not have been a popular figure with many of the Jews to whom he was writing. Uh, he was a tax collector. This is him that we find in this story, uh, which meant that he would have been despised by most of the Jewish people, most of the Hebrews, particularly probably the Pharisees. He would have been despised as a traitor to his people. <clears throat> so he was Jewish, but he was collaborating with the Roman oppression of the Jewish people, uh, which made him worse than just like you would, you know, say the tax guy, right? You, you sort of are resentful of the IRS. Uh, IRS auditors, you know, he's sort of suspicious of them. It's, it's worse than that. These tax collectors, they benefited from Roman oppression of their people. They made their living in a way that reminded these people of their suffering and their oppression, right? So oftentimes in their greed, they leveraged their position and abused their power and extorted more money out of people who could just do nothing about it. So Jewish patriots would have viewed these tax collectors with hatred and with disdain. Hardly any sinner could be more treacherous than tax collectors. They betrayed their country and they grew wealthy off the misery of the people. And then along comes Jesus walking by the tax booth and tells one of these tax collectors to follow him. And in doing so, Jesus accepts Matthew into fellowship. It's like saying, we're going to be friends now. And he invites him to participate in this new community of friends that's gathering around Jesus. Apparently, Jesus thinks that he can work with Matthew somehow as a, as a teacher works with a disciple, as a, uh, an apprentice, you know. Um, he thinks he can teach something to this traitor. He thinks he can make something of this traitor. And then, uh, Mark, as again, Mark and Luke tell us, Matthew uh, goes home, throws a big party at his house, a feast, great feast at his house, and he makes... This feast for Jesus and all of his friends, all Matthew's friends, they just come scurrying out to join the party like roaches coming out of hiding from all the dark cracks and crevices and little holes, nooks and crannies of the world, right? These people that come to this party, they would never be welcome among polite company. They'd never be welcome among uh, respectable citizens, but they can get together at Matthew's place. They feel comfortable enough uh, to get together at Matthew's place, <clears throat> And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, in verse 10, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So sinners is a, is a term that's likely used to describe people who just didn't take their Hebrew faith very seriously. Uh, they weren't uh, utterly devoted to observing the law of Moses like the Pharisees thought really everybody should be, or they, they didn't participate in the religious sacrificial ceremonies of their people. They didn't care about cleanness. Uh, laws and observing all that, so maybe they just didn't go offer the sacrifices. And, and uh, they were considered morally compromised for any number of reasons. Could have been all kinds of different people who qualify as sinners in uh, at least the Pharisees' eyes. <clears throat> and Jesus and all these terrible, loathsome creatures just relaxed. And they got comfortable in each other's company. And they shared a meal, reclining at table together. So Jesus is making it abundantly clear to anyone who's paying attention that he associates with sinners, with bad people, the wrong people. He doesn't just pity them in some <clears throat> distant way or some patronizing way. He's come for a real relationship with sinners. So R.T. France says, in the, in the ancient world, uh, generally, a shared meal 
was a clear sign of identification. Most commentators will point that out. <clears throat> when you share a meal with somebody, uh, whether it's you, you hosting them or you going to their house, <clears throat> it means some kind of intimacy and an identification. So Jesus wasn't just sort of kind to people that he met in passing, so long as he didn't have to really see them or smell them again, right? Uh, perhaps, you know, healing them in brief encounters, being kind and gracious to them, but <clears throat> just sort of passing. Uh, he was choosing to spend time with them in intimate friendship. He opens his life to these people and he receives them. Jesus is saying of these sinners, by going to this party and reclining at table with them and eating shared meal together, he's saying of these sinners, these are my people. I'm one with them. <clears throat> that obviously bothers righteous people who can't stand to be around morally compromised people. So in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, <clears throat> why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right? So you can hear the contempt in their question, not just for the sinners, but for Jesus, who would willingly choose to identify with sinners. There's a contempt for Jesus here. The Pharisees, uh, the, the very religious people, they're scandalized by Jesus' mercy. <clears throat> so another commentator, Ronald Kernigan, said, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, if there were any rabble who might reasonably be blamed for the sorry state of affairs in first century Galilee and Judea, it was the people with whom Jesus associated. They're to blame. They're the reason why we're in this mess, right? So the Pharisees taught that if all the Jewish people all together would just keep the law and just, <clears throat> you know, follow all the rules, do what we tell them and do what's right, uh, then the promised Messiah would come and deliver us from Rome. And they, they just wanted to make Israel great again. And the reason their country was a mess is because of people like this that Jesus is hanging out with. Those sinners, those sinners are the real problems with this world. And this teacher was just getting cozy with them. Right? His, his eating with them seemed like sort of tacit approval of their sinful ways, like he's undermining the ideas of morality and enabling them just to keep on sinning. You really should shun them like we do. That might have the effect of you know, putting pressure on them to straighten their lives out, but he's just accepting them and being with them must not be much of a teacher, or at least uh, whatever it is he's teaching can't be very good considering the company he keeps. So again, you can hear the condemnation in their question to the disciples, uh, which also would have been insulting to the disciples, right? This guy's your teacher? Hmm. But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, and that word sick can be translated a wrong or bad. Those who are sick, those who are wrong, those who are bad, they need a physician. So you've got to get those air quotes in there to understand uh, what he's saying. He's not saying there is such a category as spiritually healthy people you know, like the Pharisees who are so truly righteous that they just don't actually need his help. There's people in the world who don't need his salvation. That's not what he's saying. This is, this is cutting irony. This is irony, right? All people are sick spiritually. All people are sinners. All people are bad people. All are people gone wrong. The scriptures are so clear on this point. It's just that self-righteous people are convinced otherwise. 
Self-righteous people are convinced otherwise. They, they believe they can be good enough, and in fact, they are good enough. They look at themselves, and they look at other people, and they believe, well, they're not quite as bad as those other people. Not bad at all, really. They don't recognize their true spiritual condition, their sickness, their sin. Functionally, they don't believe they do sin. It's pretty much the worst sin of all in Jesus' book, in, in the Bible. So Jesus exposes this reality with irony, which he uses surprisingly often. Um, there's lots of times when you won't be able to understand what Jesus is saying if you don't think he uses irony or even humor. <clears throat> but more than this, more than just exposing uh, sort of the ridiculousness of the Pharisees' position, Jesus is explaining to them why it makes perfect sense that he would actually associate with sinners. It makes perfect sense. Of course a physician would go to the sick people to help them, to heal them, to make them whole, or else he just wouldn't be much of a physician, would he? Right? Of course the Savior would seek out sinners to forgive them and love them and to be with them and restore their relationship with God and to heal them and make them whole and make them new. So D.A. Carson says, There's no suggestion... <clears throat> that Jesus went to sinners because they gladly received him. Rather, he went to them because they're sinners, just as a doctor goes to the sick because they're sick. Right? So it's not like you get a whole bunch of people in a room who are bad people, tax collectors and sinners, and they really speak the same language and they understand Jesus and, and they're going to be more likely to receive Jesus. <clears throat> it's that he's more likely to go to people like that because they, they're sick and they know they're sick. And he's there to heal Right, so this leads us to a discovery about Jesus that never ceases to amaze us, that there's something in him, <clears throat> there's something in his heart, there's something in his love that's actually drawn to sinners, drawn to the wrong people, drawn to bad people. He, he doesn't love sin. He can't approve of sin. It's actually impossible for him to do that, but he has compassion towards sinners. He has pity on sinners. He chooses to be present with sinners to rescue them from an existence apart from God. So, <clears throat> you probably knew I was going to quote Dane Orland at this point, uh, gentle and lowly. He says, when we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn out to us. Just as the purer a heart, the more horrified at evil, so also the purer a heart, the more it's naturally drawn out to help and relieve and protect and comfort. Whereas a corrupt heart sits still indifferent. So with Christ, his holiness finds evil revolting, more revolting than any of us ever could feel. But it is that very holiness that also draws his heart out to help and relieve and protect and comfort. And so in that book, <clears throat> he also quotes from Thomas Goodwin, one of the Puritans, from his book, The Heart of Christ. <clears throat> he says, but our sins are motives to him to pity us. Our sins are motives to Jesus to pity us. Jesus isn't affirming our sin, right? He doesn't celebrate a sinner's uh, lifestyle choices. He doesn't say, yeah, good for you. Keep doing what you're doing. You be you. He knows better than anyone what sin really is and what it means that we sin. Sin is abhorrent to him, and no one is more offended by sin than Jesus. But Jesus hates sin because he loves us. He hates sin because he loves us. And his love for us is compelled and has compelled him to search us out and have mercy on us and to save us and to welcome us right into his company. 
His love compels him to call this tax collector Matthew to follow him. His love compels him to recline at table with the wrong people, to embrace them as his people, to identify himself with them. His love compelled him even to go to the cross. I mean, you want to talk about identifying with sinners, which is something you're not supposed to do. More than eating with sinners and saying, these are my people. More than that, Jesus on the cross was identifying himself as the sinner. In fact, he identified as sin itself. He literally identified as sin itself. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, this is why he did this, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. To be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? So the righteous one identified as unrighteousness. Jesus bore the shame and the guilt and the condemnation of identifying with us in our sin so that the unrighteous, that's us, might identify as the very righteousness of God so that sinners could be together with him in eternal fellowship. His love compels him to do that. His love compels him to call sinners to himself, which also means calling us to repent. That's uh, in the parallel passages in, in Mark and Luke. Um, it does end up that way. He says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? He calls us to repent, to turn away from our sins, to come to him. His compassion for sinners does not minimize our sinfulness. It doesn't dismiss it, sweep it under the rug. It, it doesn't undermine accountability or morality or justice in any way. Jesus is concerned with holiness more truly than anyone else who's ever lived. Jesus is concerned with holiness. <clears throat> it's just that the fundamental characteristic of his true holiness is love. And it's mercy. Mercy is sort of an expression of love. So, uh, so he says in verse 13 to the Pharisees, go and learn. And the, that word for learn, it's sort of the root word for disciples. I mean, he could almost be saying, come and learn. Come and be my disciples. Uh, it could be translated like that. Um, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, not merely ceremonial piety. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus uses, it's a common rabbinic formula, a, a phrase that the rabbis used, right? Go and learn. It's like a, it's like a catchphrase that your teacher would use in class all the time. Like uh, one of my teacher's <clears throat> professors in college said, uh, now this is the homework for the rest of your life. Go and do this. Go and figure this out. It's like telling the Pharisees, do your homework. And he quotes from Hosea 6, which was our Old Testament reading that Calvin read. And uh, in a sense, uh, you know, he's introducing them to scriptures that they're familiar with. No one knew the Bible better than the Pharisees, but Jesus knew that they needed to learn the meaning. Go and learn what this means, he says, the meaning of the scriptures, right? So it's one thing to memorize scriptures, and it's another thing to understand them. The Pharisees didn't realize that Hosea 6, which they were familiar with, but it was a direct challenge to them, but it exposed their reliance on ritual purity for righteousness. They thought, we're okay because we do the ceremonial piety stuff, right? But it, it called for a different kind of holiness than, they were, than the kind that they were cultivating. They were cultivating the sacrifices kind, you know, bring something to the altar, weigh it out the right way, do it at the right schedule, and, and you'll be all right. <clears throat> but the holiness of God uh, that Jesus is calling for 
is a different kind. God desires mercy. He desires steadfast love. He desires relational holiness, not merely ceremonial piety. Relational holiness. That's God. God desires that we be merciful because mercy is core to who he is. Love is essential to his nature. Mercy is not out of character for God. It's not something that he reluctantly says, well, I guess I'll have to do this for a while in order to fix things. Mercy defines his character as he relates to sinners. When he came into the world, he came in mercy to call sinners into a new relationship with him. And part of that calling is for sinners, his disciples, his people, to, is, is for them to live by mercy right alongside of them. He doesn't just desire to show mercy. He desires mercy from his people as well. When his mercy evokes our mercy through the Holy Spirit, that's glorious. That's glorious. And God loves it. God wants us to have the same kind of relational holiness that he has, to love with the same kind of merciful love, even scandalous love. And we see that clearly in this passage again, verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Right? He calls sinners to be his disciples, to learn what it means when God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. To live by mercy rather than by self-righteousness and condemnation. This calling is a detestable calling as far as self-righteous people are concerned, right? Those, those who live by mercy truly, they will be condemned for it by self-righteous people. Just as Jesus was condemned here, we also, if we live with this merciful, scandalous love, will be condemned by self-righteous people. But if you love mercy, then when Jesus calls you to live by it, it's a joyful calling. That's a joyful prospect. If you see yourself among the sinners at Matthew's party, <clears throat> if you see yourself in need of Jesus' mercy and compassion, and if you love the heart of Christ toward the wrong people such as yourself, then it'll be a joy to join Jesus in his divine mercy toward other sinners. So, uh, do you rely on correct behavior? On doing the right thing? being compliant, whether that means some ritual form of religious purity or maybe some other standard of holy living or good living, you rely on those things in order to feel secure, in order to feel righteous, in order to feel right with God? What's your response to other sinners? Do you think Jesus should hang out with them? Uh, what do you think about him calling you to hang out with them? Are there certain people with whom you would never associate because of what it might say about you? Are there certain people with whom you'd never want to be identified, that you would never want to claim as you know, my people, your people, because you think you're better than they are, or just different, you shouldn't, shouldn't associate with them? Maybe that's politicians, maybe it's the poor, maybe it's prostitutes or pedophiles. Would you invite them over to Thanksgiving dinner and relax and get comfortable with each other and share a meal together? Jesus was drawn to you in your need, and he chose you to be with you. That's scandalous. He desires mercy. He loves mercy. He is the God of mercy in the flesh. 
Anyone who knows him and loves him in his mercy will become like him. So come and live by mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need you to remake us entirely, uh, to, to make us entirely new so that we would love mercy as you do. Send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to bear this impossible fruit. Help us to truly behold Jesus in his mercy, to know our need for him, and to trust your love for us in him. We pray that you would grow the life of Jesus in us and help us to participate in his relationship with you that means mercy to sinners. Help us not just to think well about true righteousness, but to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.